Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts always be acceptable in thy sight. For thou art our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. I was looking at a, uh, uh, some statistics this week from the Barna Institute, uh, and I ran across this one. One of four Christians has ten spiritual conversations or more in a year. So a quarter of Christians have ten or more spiritual conversations of a year, in a year. And that encompasses all sorts of things. It encompasses any connection between spirituality or faith and daily life and living. And while I'm encouraged that the conversation's going on, that statistic's pretty poor. That only a quarter of us that claim to be Christians have more than 10 spiritual conversations in a year. Are we really that segmented in our life? Statistics don't say why, they only say what. And so I can only guess that perhaps it's because there is that, that disconnect between daily living and our faith, or maybe we don't have clear enough teaching to know what to say, or maybe that teaching isn't penetrating our hearts. We don't know what the cause is, but it's a problem. And on the day that we celebrate, as that great hymn said, the connection between Christmas and Easter, the idea of taking the good news of the incarnation, God coming down and becoming man and dwelling among us, dying for us, and rising again. On that day, it bears, I think, some conversation. You see, we've talked about the past several weeks, Jesus doing a miraculous sign at the wedding in Cana back in John 2. And then, of course, last week we heard Jesus speaking in the synagogue and saying, today has come that this Isaiah prophecy is fulfilled. The Messiah is in your midst. Healing is in your midst. The church puts Candlemas where it puts Candlemas because it's encouraging us to look back in order to look forward. And so we continually see this theme throughout the texts today. Looking back to look forward. Just like in his baptism, Jesus continues to fulfill the covenant today. Jesus looks to the old law, looking back to look forward. So I want to invite you to open with me to Luke chapter 2. But I'd like you to open with me to the verse before our gospel today. Verse 1. Luke chapter 2. I'm sorry, that's wrong. Um, Luke chapter 2, verses 20, verse 21. There we go. Verse 21. 
And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by an angel before he was conceived in the womb. Verse 22, where we start today. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. I want you to know that these are two different events that people sometimes conflate. They sometimes confuse this as one. Jesus is circumcised in verse 21, and he's circumcised on the eighth day in accordance with the law, Leviticus 12, for those of you that know the Old Testament law. So there's actually 21 days that occur between his circumcision and his presentation. I'm sorry, there's 72 days, I'm having trouble with numbers this morning, between his circumcision and his presentation. That's two and a half months, okay, between those two verses. So see that, first of all. Circumcision for the Jews is the rough equivalent of baptism. It's done on the eighth day. It's how they are entered into the covenant. It's done by their parents, just like baptism in the church today, although not universally, as you, some of you know. Um, so what's going on here is the presentation. And this is fulfilling, looking back to another bit of the law in the Old Testament. It goes back to Jesus being presented and Mary being purified. Again, we have to go to the Old Testament to see what's going on. So this is Leviticus 12, yet again, verses 6. And I'll just read this to you. And when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent a meeting lamb a year old for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. And he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for those who bear a child, either male or female. So one of the things that the Old Testament is always accused of being is anti-sex or anti-anything body. And I ask you, is that what's going on here? And I firmly tell you, no, that's not what's going on here. It's not that birth or sex is somehow dirty. That's not what God's saying. But quite something else. You see, God created these things, and he created them to exist in a context and with a purpose. And what God is saying here in the Old Testament law is that life is precious and good. Birth is sacred. Bearing children is a holy thing to the Lord. It's not something to be done lightly, just like marriage isn't something to be done lightly. And those of you that have had children know that if you enter into it lightly, boy, you're setting yourself up, right? But it's a huge responsibility that God views as sacred. And so what God is doing in Leviticus is contrasting his people with how other people act in the Middle East at that time. What's going on here is he's making a contrast between his people and other people. You see, in the Old Testament, the gods of Baal were being worshipped in the midst of Israel. 
And one of those gods was a god by the name of Molech. Have you heard that name before? Molech is a god of Baal. And Molech was a god of fertility. So if you wanted to have lots of children, or if you wanted your fields to explode in abundance, if you wanted to prosper in all ways, you made your offering to Molech. And do you know what that offering was? Your firstborn son. And what you would do is you would take your firstborn son or daughter, I think, and you would bring them to the priest of Moloch, who would then throw them into a fiery furnace and burn them up. That was your offering to the god of fertility, to the god of abundance, to Moloch. What is God saying here in Leviticus? He's saying, do not be like those people. You are my people, and life is sacred. Do not be like the pagans around you who don't honor life, who don't see life as intrinsically good, a gift from God, something that you have great responsibility for. Yes, it will be a huge blessing to you. Oh, yes, but you don't have dominion over life human life. God has dominion, and God alone has dominion over human life. Leviticus chapter 18, God is very clear on this. 18 verses 21, he says, you shall not give any of your children or offer them to Molech. So and so to do is to profane the name of the Lord your God. I am the Lord, God says. God's people who engage in such things or who even tolerate such things or ignore such things, verse 20 says, is profaning to his name, scandalous to his name. God's people cannot take any part in that. So God's contrasting Israel and his people to the pagan gods and those people. Sex is a holy gift. Children are a holy gift, not to be used to manipulate people, not to be worshipped as ends in themselves, and not to be used outside of God's purpose, for they're intrinsically good. The ancient Jew and the Christian would have seen this. It's the reason for the presentation and the purification of Mary. This is an enactment of God's valuing of life. But there's a second lesson that the firstborn child is presented before God is also an indication that God has redeemed mankind. Just see what's going on here. Again, we have to go to the Old Testament, look back to learn to look forward. We see after the Ten Commandments and the crossing of the Red Sea in Exodus 13, when the Lord brings you to the land of the Canaanites as he swore to you and your fathers and shall give to you, you shall set apart for the Lord all that first opens the womb, the firstborn of your animals, the firstborn of your donkey, and you shall redeem it with a lamb. And you shall, every firstborn of man, your sons shall be redeemed. 
And when in time you come, the Lord asks of you, what does this mean? I'm sorry, when in time to come, your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord has brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord the Lord, all the males that the first opened the womb, that is animals, but the firstborn of my son I redeem. It shall be a mark, says Moses in verse 16, on your hand or the frontlets of your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out of Egypt. So stick with me, what's going on here? It's a mark of God's redemption, the presentation. Okay? So the presentation is a sign of God's mercy. It's a sacramental act that comes to us from the Old Testament. It reminds the Israelites that their firstborns were spared because they're God's chosen people. And they're spared at a price, the price of the blood of a lamb. Or in Jesus' case, his parents were so poor that they had to use the lesser price, the turtle dove, two turtle doves. But there's a supreme irony in Jesus' presentation here. And that irony is this. That Jesus is being presented back to the Lord, and yet Jesus is the Lord. And so Jesus actually, here being presented before God, is a sign, not just that life is sacred, but that God has redeemed all of mankind. And in the temple, there's two people waiting for this. Anna and Simeon. If we look at verse 25 in the gospel today, it tells us that Simeon has been waiting a long time for this. Look at verse 25 in chapter 2. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was a righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents of the child in the in, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took up in his arms, the blessed God, and said. And then we go into the Nuc Dimittis, that famous song that we say in evening prayer every day. What's Simeon doing? He's looking, waiting, expecting. He's looking back because he knows that he's to look forward. He's looking back to see who the Messiah is to look forward to see how the Messiah is going to fulfill the law. And so he's hanging on. Hanging on through age, through disease, through despair, through all of those things, as is Anna, who's the other fascinating person in the story. Anna's the providence. She embodies, whereas Simeon voices hope, Anna embodies hope. Look at her story. 
This is 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanael, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. And then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting and with prayer night and day. And coming up to that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. 84. It's a long time to wait. And yet she too is looking back to look forward. She too is looking to the hope that's going to be given to Israel. Jesus gives both these people's lives meaning in two ways. First of all, he gives their lives meaning in that they're part of mankind. They're human. They're intrinsically important to God. But second of all, he gives their lives meaning because they have purpose for their life. Do you see? They have a spiritual purpose for their life that Jesus gives to them. Jesus presented to God here is giving them life and enacting that. Jesus being presented to God shows the value of life and is also, however, because Jesus is God, God presenting who? God presenting mankind to God. Do you see that? Because Jesus is fully God and fully man. Therefore, Jesus being presented to God is presenting to God himself and all of mankind who are found in Jesus Christ. As Christians today, we find ourselves in a difficult place in culture, valuing life less and less. It's all over the politics of today. You can't have gone through this week without seeing it on TV or on the internet or in your Facebook feed. From racism to immigration policy to euthanasia to abortion. Currently, our society is having debate over whether life truly is valuable. What gives value to human beings? If you're a Christian, fleeing refugees who are fleeing violence, who are being oppressed in their own countries and looking for help, cannot be dismissed as political talking points. Seeing those individuals as people with dignity is essential for Christians. Now, we can disagree all that we want about policy. We can disagree all we want about law. We can disagree about what goes on. But this has to be clear, that individual human beings are important and can't be means to ends, politically or economically. No human being has the right to do that. Secondly, no human being has the right to decide that an innocent baby ought to be killed because of potential inconvenience or poor health or any other potential situation of poverty or hardship. No human being has the right to take away that dignity 
of someone born or not yet born. The scripture is clear on this. Psalm 22, verse 10, God writes, or we, or, or we sing to God, On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Or Psalm 139, verse 13, For you formed my inward parts and knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. And in the early church, the earliest teaching of the church, the Didache, which scholars think was written in the first hundred years of the church, before 100 AD, this is how the teaching of the apostles starts. There are two ways, one of life and one of death. And between the two ways, there is a great difference. Now, this is the way of life. The second commandment of the teaching, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not corrupt boys, do not fornicate, do not steal, do not practice magic, do not go into sorcery, do not murder a child by abortion or kill a newborn infant, do not covet your neighbor's property, do not commit perjury, do not bear false witness, do not slander, do not bear grudges, do not be double-minded or double-tongued. It goes on. Do not plot against your neighbor. Do not hate anybody, but reprove someone. Pray for others and still others. Love as if you love your own life. That's what the apostles teach right after the Bible is written. This week, Archbishop Foley Beach issued a response to the New York abortion bill saying this, abortion is the greatest moral issue of our time. The legislation and attitudes that threaten life are not going away anytime soon, but neither are we. Our Christian commitment to protect life from conception to natural death is literally written into the Anglican Church of North America's constitution, and it's our identity as a church. Again, friends, I don't pretend that there aren't complexities in this issue, both socially and politically. But the principle is clear. The principle of the value of personhood, of being made in God's image, and the sanctity of life is something we must hold to in all circumstances. It's wrapped up in the presentation of Christ itself. And so I ask you, how does Jesus' presentation of all mankind affect your life? How does it affect your conversations? How does it affect those spiritual conversations you have with people around you? How does it shape your ethics? Where does it cause your politics to be different? There is a way of life and a way of death. Let us be consistent in always choosing the way of life. Amen.